Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. my goodness. Are you guys happy to be here this morning? Oh, Jonas and the team, that was just amazing worship. And uh, I don't know if you have anything left in your tank or if you just left it all there, but uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be joining you in the room here in Wasilla or online, wherever you're tuning in from this morning. As we get into um, the next of a series in the books of First and Second Samuel, we've been kind of looking at some of the characters some of the leadership qualities that emerge in this series we've entitled Sons, Sovereigns, and Seduction. And today, we move a little bit deeper into the series. Um, last week, Pastor Walker sort of set the tone and set us up by, by telling a little bit about um, where the book begins. It begins in a place of really um, unrest where Israel believes that they are doing some of the right things. A lot of us in our lives think we're doing what is right, but it's really right in their own eyes, not necessarily right from God's standard. And there are consequences associated with living out of your own sense of what is right and what is wrong. And as a result, Israel had kind of suffered under a burden of sin. Eli was the first one on the stage in our story And he's a priest in Shiloh, and he's supposed to be guiding or shepherding God's people, but instead he's shirking his responsibilities. In fact, right underneath his nose, we have two sons, and these two sons are just described as nothing more than wicked. That's what they are. They're worthless fellows. And because of this, Israel was suffering under a burden. But it's also in this moment, that God enters the picture in a more profound way. This is the way God is, isn't he? He enters in that moment of greatest darkness. In those dark nights of the soul that all of us experience, that's when the light often shines brightest. And here God enters this story, but he does so through someone else's story, a woman named Hannah. And Hannah is really in her own dark night of the soul. She is in a place of barrenness, and there's, to be sure, many kinds of barrenness, but her barrenness is very much related to her womb. She just simply cannot produce a child, an heir. And as a result, she does something that not everybody does. It seems like it should be automatic, but it only happens to those who know something about the heart and nature of God. She breaks into open prayer. And in that prayer, her deepest thoughts are exposed at a surface level. And she's crazy, or at least she seems to be crazy. As a result, some of your deepest thoughts are just that crazy too. And if they were to be spoken, if they were to actually form on your lips, it would be unintelligible. But here, God hears. 
He listens to this woman. A child is born named Samuel, and he is dedicated to God. It's really where the whole story launches. And there were two principles that Pastor Walker brought out I want to reemphasize before we move forward to today's character. The first principle is this, is that surrender in moments of suffering is never in vain. I mean, Hannah's story emphasizes this. It serves us in this way. It just simply suggests that in the midst of suffering, if we suffer with the eyes of faith, if we lift our eyes off of our immediate circumstances and are able to see the bigger picture and maybe what it is that God is doing, or at least the heart of God, we could actually suffer, but not in vain. God will do something, which leads to the second principle I want to reemphasize, which is this. Our Private acts of obedience are about more than our personal journey with God. Do you believe that? Our private acts of obedience are about more than our personal journey with God. In other words, everything we do, every decision we make is connected to something larger. Connected, if you will, to a bigger picture. What I love about the story is that it's just that. It's a story. I don't know. I don't know if you remember story time back in the day, but but probably you do because stories are memorable. The Bible is written in a lot of different genres, but probably our favorite has to be narrative, right? And the reason is because because narratives have something to do with us as we see What God is doing in the lives of real individuals, we discover that our lives intersect with their lives. It's deeply personal. In fact, we've been told we're never to compare ourselves with each other, and that may be true, but when it comes to the Bible, I want to release you to compare yourself to the characters of the Bible. Because While we do that, in doing so, we actually discover something about ourselves. In a sense, they act like a mirror. And they tell us a little bit about not only our present, but also maybe our future, if we're careful. Stories have a way of reshaping us, of challenging the status quo in our lives. Stories also have a way of ripping us out of the everyday mundane, don't they? There's a certain phenomenon that can take place, and I don't care how spiritual you think I am or Pastor Walker is or anybody else is, we all experience the same thing you experience, that after time or as time goes on, the things that are most familiar become the most, well, mundane and familiar. And if we don't break out of that, if we don't see God's bigger picture, if we don't see design We could actually stagnate in our walk. You can too. We we reach these what's called religious platitudes, right? Where God becomes boring. It happened to Israel in the wilderness, and it can happen to us. Stories, though, have a way of re-engaging our creative imagination and reimagining a future desired direction. In fact, it's interesting to me as we tell the story that we get into today, but as we, as we get into the New Testament and we see the birth of the church in the New Testament, isn't it interesting that 
it is identified, or the believers are identified as followers of the way. It's as if to suggest there's this pathway, not this list of do's and don'ts, but there's this pathway that we can follow. There's this journey that we're on. There's this story that we're in that intersects with the lives of others and God's life. In fact, it's not just this journey, but when Jesus walks along the Sea of Galilee and he invites the disciples and maybe by extension us into the conversation, his conversation, he simply says this, would you follow me? Would you follow me? Would you enter my story? So stories are profound. In story, we discover we are not at the center of the universe. But there is a hero in every biblical story, and the hero is God. And today, we want to take a look at another story, a story about a man named David, who David is rather familiar. If you grew up in church, for instance, you probably know some of the details about the life of David. He's an incredible man, um, and he becomes king over Israel. But there's something said about David that really sticks out to me, something about his story. And it's that he is described later on as a man after God's own heart. As I was reimagining and reengaging with David's story, I was realizing I'm not certain that God could say that of me all the time. Am I a man after God's own heart? David was, and if David was a man after God's own heart, even with some of the failures that he experienced, I come to believe, I really do believe, there is something unfamiliar about David that we must discover. There's something that drives him, something that shapes him, something that motivates him that we're meant to get in on. Because every good story was meant to shape you. We look at the life of David, but we also look beyond the life of David to what his life produced. What's so interesting about David is that David's greater son is none other than Jesus Christ. We can point it right back to a man who made some decisions. What were those decisions? And come to think of sons and seduction and sovereigns, David has all three. I mean, all three of those things are in the story of David. So what I want to do this morning is I want, to, I want to be transfixed on essentially the very early stages of David. Every leader has a foundation from which they build. What were the materials that David built with that shaped his direction in life? What is it about that and our story that is meant to intersect and shape us. What is some of the challenges that David is going to have to face? And what are some of the solutions that he comes up with? And what is it that drives him through thick and thin so that he could be described as an overcomer? Well, it's interesting. We could probably go a number of different places in Scripture to talk about King David. But as we look at the early days of David, we discover that he is, first and foremost, a shepherd. 
Everybody knows that about David. But we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 17 and 18 primarily. We're really just going to stay there. Now, there's a bigger story that surrounds, and my encouragement to you would be that you go back and you read it. I mean, last week we landed with like chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, so you've got some work to do. But here, I want to start in on David's story. And the reason is because this is where Saul's story begins to taper off. It's where his story begins to end. Samuel anoints Saul. That's one of the big things that Samuel does, is he discovers a king. And he anoints Saul. And if you know anything about Saul, I mean, Saul was a great man in some sense. But the most important thing you need to know about Saul is that God ordained Saul to be the king. God was behind it, even while he opposed the idea of a king. He actually pleases the people, but he brings his full weight behind Saul. He believes in Saul. Saul was meant to produce something. But by the time David steps on the scene, we've already kind of encountered all of Saul's successes, which is remarkable. There weren't very many of them. And we discover in the story of Saul that something's off. Something's a little bit haywire in his life. For instance, this is kind of weird, a little bit off. When Saul is asked to be king, everybody gathers together. They gather together and they say, who's going to be the king that reigns over us? Well, Saul had already been anointed king. And Saul was there in the crowd. But he kind of was hanging out where all the food was kept. He was just hiding. He was aloof. And then everybody begins to ask, well, Saul's the man. Where is he? He's not there. He's absent. He's absent from his big moment. He's hesitant. There's something about him that wants to hide. We go from there, and he actually assumes the throne. I mean, maybe, reluctantly, he decides that this is an opportunity to obey God, and God is behind this. He immediately has some victories, but then other things surface in his life. He seems to be impatient. In fact, this is one of the reasons why God moves away from Saul and toward David. There's this moment where this battle must be faced, and Saul is meant to wait for Samuel for a sacrifice before going to war, to seek the face of God. This was a top priority. More important than winning victories was worshiping the God of heaven. But Saul gets things out of place. As a matter of fact, he's so impatient, he moves forward with the sacrifice apart from God's man, and as a result, mucks everything up. For this reason, God says, I've anointed somebody else. My spirit has left you. Saul begins being tormented. As we encounter Saul, the result of this torment is far-reaching. The truth of the matter is, is he has various levels of dysfunction. Everything from just kind of being stuck to being a full-blown raging narcissist. If you look at the totality of Saul's life, you're going to find just about everything you can imagine that can go wrong with a man. Particularly, he was desperate for preserving his own self-image. It left him without. He had lost the glory of the throne even before he had stepped aside 
from the throne. And people seemed to sense it. This is Paul, Saul. And interestingly enough, he has a coping mechanism. It's a harp. Ladies, if your husband is at home listening to harp music, something is desperately wrong. This is where we find who should have been the hero of the story, but he's not. The other thing that's interesting is that somebody else has been anointed king, and Saul doesn't know who it is. And then Goliath enters the scene. Goliath emerges in the story. The focus for most of us is always on Goliath. He's just so doggone impressive. I don't know if you've ever stood in the presence of somebody that is that tall. There have been other people that have been that tall in in society, or at least very, very close to it. Books are written about them. It's impressive. And yet, I don't actually think Goliath is the point of the story. In fact, I think that Goliath emerges on the scene because of who Saul isn't. Saul was meant to fight God's battles. But because of his faithlessness, because of his waiting and hesitancy, because of his lack of courage, because of the dysfunction that was all over his life, Goliath is allowed to exist. You don't ever get to run away from your struggles. They have a tendency to follow you wherever you go and grow. And this is the case in Saul's life. Now, everything comes to a head. The question is, what will Saul do in this moment? So what I want to do is I want to get you into the text a little bit, and we're going to make some observations and reach some conclusions that I hope are going to be meaningful for you. But we know the story begins with David shepherding some sheep. He's out there shepherding some sheep, and one day his father comes to him and says, I want you to take some of the food and provision. I want to take it to the front line to your brothers. The reason was, as Goliath has emerged, so has Saul with the armies of Israel. They're there in a valley. I've been to the valley. There's not much. You would have been able to just about hear what everybody on the other side was talking about. The creek is relatively insignificant. It's more of a trickle than it is a rushing river. You could have simply walked across it. Stones were literally everywhere. It wouldn't have been hard to pick up some smooth ones. But here we have Goliath in the camp of the Philistines, and you have Israel, and David's brothers are there. And at any rate, Jesse says to David, I need you to leave what you're doing. I need you to go to your brothers, and I need you to feed them. I need you to give them some food. But it's in this moment that we get in on what's actually happening, what the battle actually looks like. And we pick up in verse 10 of chapter 17, says this, Then the Philistine, that's Goliath, said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. This wasn't just some simple, hey guys, you're going to lose. This wasn't smack talk. This wasn't a your mama kind of a joke. I mean, this was shame on you for even being here, for even showing up. This was open rebuke and ridicule. Are you kidding me? You have no business fighting us. Can't you see? Can't you see by looking at me, you don't belong here. Go home while you still have a chance. 
I defy the ranks of Israel today. So send me a man so we can fight each other. He was bloodthirsty. He was ready. Everything in his life had trained him for this moment. He was a warrior from his youth. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they decided, hey, you know what? God has made certain promises to take the land. Let's do it. No. Here's where Saul is at in his life. He looks at the challenge, and as the leader of God's people, he loses courage. And so they lose courage, and the state of mind is they're all terrified. They're shaking in their boots. I wonder what was in the mind of God in this moment. But we know what was in their minds. I think Goliath also knew. And he was encouraged by this. Here's God's chosen people. And really, they're on the run, even though we're caught in this stalemate. But in a moment, victory will be ours. We will beat them back. And then everybody will know our gods are the gods who own the title deed to this piece of land. That's what was in Goliath's heart. He had spite for these individuals. How dare they even come out and fight in battle arraignment? Well, it's here that we discover something of David's character. Saul and Israel is terrified, but look at David. David is now on the front lines of the battle. and he's, David left his supplies, it says, in the care of the quartermaster, and what does he do? Well, he decides, this is the moment that I have been waiting for. This is the moment I have been training for. And I am going to run to the battle. That would be a great title for a sermon series, wouldn't it? Run to the battle. I mean, here's David, and he's but a youth. All he's ever done is taken care of a few sheep, his brothers remind him of that regularly. But in this moment, even though the king and all of Israel is scared, there's something rebellious about this guy. There's something about the moment that causes him to respond in a holistically different fashion. And it's something that, frankly, I think you and I love about David. He decides this is the moment to run to the battle line. Well, he's up close, and now it's personal. Look at the text as it continues. It says this, Suddenly, the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. In other words, David was in close proximity to Goliath. He could hear the taunting from where he sat. When all the Israelite men saw Goliath, they retreated. Whether they could hear him or not, just seeing him was enough to threaten them. David, in hearing distance, was like, bring it on. What's going on here? This really causes a crisis for David and for those who he stood with because he begins to interact with everybody that he's with. And here's what he said. He spoke to the men who were around him who are standing with him, and he says, just who is this uncircumcised Philistine anyway? That he, and this is the point, that he should defy the armies of the living God. Who is this guy? What is this situation? What is going on here? 
Why are we stuck when we need to be gaining momentum? Why don't we know what to do in this moment when God has given us such magnificent promises? David begins asking questions in this moment, I think. Not just of the people around him, but perhaps of himself. Whenever we're confronted with an obstacle, it's the moment to ask questions. It's also the moment we discover what we're made of, or maybe what our faith is made of. And here, David begins passing a test. I think he's asking questions like Nehemiah in this moment. God, send me. God, rise up. God, do something. God, I remember your past. I remember the exploits of men who have obeyed you and women who have prayed for deliverance. God, is this such a time? God, what is there for me to do? Would you use my hands and my feet, anything that I have, this slingshot, these stones? Is there anything you want from me? It's yours, God. If you should move, the answer you should know is yes. I think David is thinking on that level. What's ironic is that clearly nobody else was. What sticks out to me in this moment, if you read the narrative, is Goliath is calling on the names of his gods. David is about to call on the name of God. If you look at the rest of the individuals in this story, they seem to be the only two who acknowledge the presence of a spiritual realm within the battle. And maybe that's what makes the difference. David never once feels like he is truly alone, even though all the voices are in the opposite direction in his life. He feels the pleasure of God in this moment. He feels like there is a roaring lion, but it is not satanic. It is God himself. The lion of the tribe of Judah has arrived. And it doesn't matter how insignificant other people think David is. David carries the weight and the substance and the significance, significance of God himself as he decides it's an opportunity to go in to battle. Well, it goes on, and we get a little bit more about the heart of David. David's statements are not unseen. Saul pulls them in and wants to discover a little bit about him. And look at what David says to Saul. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine, look at the certainty, will be like one of them. Four. And here's why I'm certain. Four. He has defied the armies of, and there it is again, the living God. It's as if David is borrowing the nature of God and the fact that God is this creative God who, incidentally, created Goliath. And that, as a result, has jurisdiction over Goliath's life. David is able to see what nobody else could see, that the living God is here and available. His power can be demonstrated and displayed David wants to see it. He wants to move towards it. He seems to be concerned about God's reputation when nobody else was. So what are some of the observations that we can make from this story? Well, first of all, if we were to look at Saul, like, man, something is off in this guy's life. 
Like Saul seems to be in this moment, the moment that could have defined him, that could have propelled him forward. In this moment, he seems to be all out of aces. He doesn't seem to know his right hand from his left. He's caught. He's trapped. He's stuck. He can't seem to move. He doesn't have direction. His bearings, true north, is far from Saul. But I also think Saul is here for a reason. He sort of creates Goliath. Goliath is allowed to exist because of who Saul isn't. And now Saul's trouble is on the front doorstep. But Saul doesn't gravitate towards prayer like Hannah. He doesn't gravitate towards the battle like David. Think in this moment what's exposed about Saul, what we see surfaced is that he had, reached, he had reached religious platitudes in his relationship with God. God was somewhat boring, marginalized. He was no longer well-defined. His contours no longer riveting. I mean, Saul knew about God. He had a lot of truth about God. And perhaps if we were to look at his life, there may have been a realm of morality that he knew pleased God. But in this moment, he was an unfaithful steward especially with the things of God. In this moment, he doesn't gravitate towards God. He runs away, which tells us something about him, doesn't it? There are a number of reasons we might reach this religious platitude where God becomes boring. Maybe it's because he's just too familiar. We've seen him work before, but we're not sure he'll work again. Or we're not as enamored as we used to be about the work that he does. Israel ran into this in the wilderness. I mean, here we have Israel coming out of the wilderness, and wow, God did the miraculous. I mean, think about what God did, parting the waters, right? I mean, if he could do that, perhaps he could do anything. And and if he could feed manna from heaven, I mean, my goodness, why wouldn't we trust them? And yet they don't. We fall into the same trap all the time. But it may have been something else as well that caused Saul to reach this spiritual state in his life. It may be that as Saul looked at his own agenda, he began to want what was his more than what was God's. As he began to compare God's agenda to his own, his agenda took center stage. And as a result, even though God was available, even though his power was there for the man, he would not reach out to access it. David sees more. We look at David's life in this story. Wow. I mean, here's a guy running on fumes. He's got nothing. I mean, where is his story? The story is encapsulated in a word, shepherd. There's nothing else. And yet, how is it that he is so radically different and prepared to meet this circumstance head on? There's something about the life of David. David is kind of like in that moment where he's looking at the battle and he's like, guys, what are we waiting for? Or maybe, God, what are you waiting for? He's asking the questions that we need to be asking in this moment. Where are you, Lord? Not out of a lack of faith, but because he was searching for the face of God in the midst of the conflict. 
God must be here. He must be present. His voice could shake the earth. He is the creator God. God, would you enrich my imagination to see the unseen, the realms? You are the God who speaks and worlds exist. Certainly, your power could be displayed in this very moment, in this battle. David comes at God with a certain awe and a certain wonder. And as a result, he's ready. What's interesting about this story is what's so unique about Saul. Saul is an illustration that disproves so many of our previous held assumptions. You know one of the assumptions that we have that Saul disproves? We really believe that if God would just give us more, give us better, give us a better spouse, give us a better house, give us a better schedule, give us better money. Like if God would just do that, then we would be our better selves. And Saul seems to illustrate that that is not at all true. As a matter of fact, if we were all just to get better, we wouldn't naturally become better. All better does is expose what substance is there in our lives. Here, Saul has more than David in every single way, and yet David does better. And the reason is because there's something about David that's solid, something that's firm, something of substance that guides and shapes his life. And as a result, he will shape the people around him as well, like Saul won't. But there's something else about David. As David looks at God, he seems completely satisfied in God. There's a deep satisfaction with God, and as a result, and don't miss this, David is wholly unsatisfied with the status quo. Ironically, Saul is the opposite. Saul is not at all satisfied with God. In fact, God is sort of a bother. He doesn't hop to when Saul puts down the gavel. And yet, Saul seems to be way too satisfied with the status quo. I mean, a stalemate. At least we can still go home to our wives, right? At least there's a victory in, in not having a victory. I mean, what's clear is that Saul doesn't want to lose, but we're not clear on what, whether or not he wants to win. David, on the other hand, we know exactly what he wants. He wants the glory of God. Here's what we learn from the life of Saul. Circumstances, circumstances surface substance. David's substance oozes out of him in this moment. And we gain a whole new perspective of what leadership is and what it's capable of when it's under the authority of heaven. And here's David who, who wants more than his own glory who seems to not actually be thinking about himself at all. All he can think about is the kingdom, is the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God. And as a result, as a result, some incredible things take place. For instance, Goliath is slain. Foreign armies are put to flight. 
David actually sees what many describe as the wild side of God, like others don't. Because of David's faith, his willingness to stand up in this battle, all of a sudden he's capable of engaging at another level. A new realm emerges, and David gets in on it. He sees God, and he is recorded in the book of Hebrews in the Hall of Fame of Faith which tells us something about what was driving David all along. You look at Saul, Saul was clearly driven by his image. Image to Saul was everything. Anything he could do to preserve it, that's what he did. He never found a love that he would not forsake because it was all about him. Goliath, Goliath, I think, possibly completely driven out of spite. He just hated the things of God. Some of us are Goliaths or have lived like Goliath. The brothers in Israel clearly motivated out of fear. Every decision they made was a fearful one. David, on the other hand, I think he's motivated by faith. He's able to see beyond the circumstance to the bigger picture. And armies are put to flight. Reminds me of Paul and Silas. You remember those guys? Here they are in their circumstance. They're in prison for doing the right thing, for preaching the gospel. And they're in prison in stocks. At this moment, rather than being discouraged, they see an opportunity. They don't see failure. They see something of the majesty of God. And so what they do is they bring that majesty into the environment they've been placed in. And something magical takes place. An earthquake breaks out. People get saved. The radical takes place. They see the wild side of God. But you know what? This isn't just for Paul and Silas, and it isn't just for David. We get in on this story. This is the magic of story. There's a place in this story where our lives intersect. Where we look at this story and we realize... This is for us. We need this in our life. Or God, we will be reduced to religious platitudes and status quo thinking ourselves. We need to see men and women rise to the occasion rather than shirk their responsibility. We need to see God act in powerful ways. We need that in our week, in our day, in our moments. We need to be able to look backward at the stories and have it influence the present and look forward to the promises and have it shape our future. David seems capable of that, which raises this dangerous question as the worshipers come back on stage. Here's the question I want you to ask. When was the last time, when was the last time you saw God's wild side in your life? For the people of Israel in this moment, in this generation, they pointed back to David. In fact, look at this verse, 1 Samuel 17, 52. This is remarkable. This is remarkable. Because of David, because of David's stand, the men of Israel and Judah, say it with me. They rallied. They rallied. They stood up. And they blew the horn, the battle cry, which was a sign. Everybody, get up. Something is about to happen. You are about to be a partaker of the victory that God will provide. 
And everybody stands up when they see what David has done and the wild side of God. They're encouraged. And off they go and they slay the Philistines all the way back to Ekron, where they came from. A great victory, a revival. Are you with me? A revival, a revival broke out because one person, one person knew the heart of God and was willing to stand in the gap for everyone else. One person, one man, from an insignificant background, but with all the hope a human could muster, hope built on the promises of God, makes all the difference for a nation living in stuck. I got to be quite honest with you. When I read this story, the thing I take away, the thing I want more than anything is for God to revive me. Because when I look at this story and I ask that question, I ask that question, God, when was the last time I saw your wild side? I can see Saul in me. I can see Jonah in me. I can see these stories in me. I can see the failures. I can see them resurge in my life. I can see that pattern, that desire to gravitate towards comfort and safety, that desire to be self-seeking. If there's anything wicked, guys, I can discover it in myself. But if there's anything glorious, because I know Jesus, that is also discoverable through his power. There's something about David that I also see that you need to see in you. There's something about his passion, his fervor. He knew God could shake the foundations. He knew God could shake the whole earth. He knew who the creator was. He knew who your creator was. And he wanted you. And I want you to reimagine in the creative of your imagination who God is in a fresh way. And I want you to pray. God, would you revive me? Would you reshape me? Would you lift my eyes? Would you take me further? Come on now, would you stand with me now? We're about to sing a song. God, would you revive me? Would you take me further? God, would you revive me? Would you show me your face? Would you show me who you are? Would you remind me of the stories of the past? God, would you become bigger? Would you expand my borders? God, I love you. Would you reshape my imagination? Would you show me my next step? Would you give me the boldness to do what needs to be done? God, not just for myself, but for the next generation. God, would your glory flow through me and through this place and through your church? God, would you touch lives and hearts for your name's sake? God, we love you. Would you revive us, God? We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it um, stands out to me, and I encourage you this week, go back and read the whole story. Um, because the difference between Saul and David is not the anointing, right? They've both been anointed by God to be the king of Israel. And in fact, God tells Samuel to anoint Saul, and Saul is going to be the deliverer of his people. Here's the difference between Saul and David. Whenever Saul fails, he runs from God. 
And when David fails, he runs toward God. That's what makes David a man who is in pursuit of or after God's heart, is because every single time, his default is to run to the throne, not from it, in his time of need. And Saul is ultimately disqualified because of his inability to repent, to turn back towards the sovereign God of all the universe. But in this service in particular, this verse leapt out to me because I think that's this is some people in this room today. David literally has just come from the sheep fields. He sees Goliath, and in verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war since his youth. Here it is. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to be a keeper of his father's sheep. Wait a minute. He's currently a keeper of his father's sheep. But David sees himself in a brand new light in light of the moment that he finds himself in. And that's some of you in this room today. You need to identify the season that God has placed you in, the position that he's placed you in, the relationships that he's placed you in. And it is time to get off your haunches and declare the identity that God has declared over you already, that you are a slayer of giants. Amen? Amen. All right. We could just have a second. So you just sit down. We'll do a second. Okay, never mind. Hey, um, prayer ministry teams, I'm going to invite them to come over to both sides here. They're going to be available for prayer if you have any needs today. Um, tonight, the second part of the Ascent class happens. If you missed last week, you can watch it online. But tonight is all about discovering your design, discovering your purpose. And so um, if you registered, show up tonight. If you didn't, go watch the video and come tonight if you'd like to. But that'll be happening in this room tonight. Hey, Church on the Rock, grace and peace to you. You are dismissed. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.